This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. All right, we've talked uh, at length over the uh, about the opioid crisis that we are facing in this country. Now, starting April first, Ontario will begin tracking all opioid overdoses in the province on a weekly basis. The hope by doing so is they'll get some real time uh, a real time look at uh, how this crisis is growing. To talk more about all of this, Michael Parkinson is with us, drug strategy specialist with the Waterloo Crime Prevention Council, and on the line with us now. Hello, Michael. How are you today? Hello, Scott. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Uh, your thoughts on this, Michael, and what will this do to help? Well, it's progress for sure, and uh, in the sense that it'll provide information on the demographics and uh, of people overdosing in Ontario uh, that show up to hospitals. It'll um, provide a little, uh, some data closer to when the overdose actually happened. Um, it'll be at least a week before we know. Uh, quite likely longer. So it's progress. Um, it's not real-time uh, overdose monitoring that uh, many across this province have been calling for for many years. So you, this is or this isn't real-time? Uh, this is not real-time uh, monitoring. Um, currently, the coroner's office um, can provide data on fatal overdoses um, within a year to two years, uh, and that's been improving um, but for uh, all the other overdoses, non-fatal overdoses, we simply don't measure that. And there are injuries associated with non-fatal overdoses, um, but we just have no idea how many or the extent of, of the damage. Um, so this is not real-time monitoring. And really the reason you want real-time monitoring um, is so you can respond uh, to the overdose clusters that are occurring. Uh, we know they're occurring, at least anecdotally, and Folks in uh, uh, emergency medical systems and uh, folks in emergency departments know that they uh, more frequently now occur in clusters. So nine people overdose in 30 minutes or 20 people overdose in 12 hours. And the value of real-time monitoring in that situation is you can respond in, in a similar way that we might respond to uh, detection of an outbreak of an infectious disease or, you know, you think mumps or influenza, um, foodborne illnesses, for example. So this is progress. Um, it's not real-time monitoring, but uh, it's progress. So obviously real-time monitoring would give you uh, an indication of a problem on the ground as it's happening. So, for example, if there is something bad going around and you're hearing one or two overdoses, you can hopefully get ahead of it before seven or eight or nine. That's, that's right. Uh, the, the end goal with real-time monitoring is really uh, saving lives and, and reducing injuries. And um, with a real-time system, you can respond um, uh, you know, within minutes or hours. Um. With a situation such as this, where there's drugs coming in, sometimes there's bad batches, uh, is that what's really needed in order to solve this problem when we have something that, uh, you know, has obviously arrived in a community and then is starting to spread within that community? Well, it's really helpful to know what you're dealing with as a as a medical practitioner or or someone who uh, may be using drugs or someone who uh, uh, is at risk of witnessing an overdose, um, and, and that's not really um, laid out in in the current announcement. Um, but it should be a part of any um, progress going forward. And you know the phenomena in 2015, 16, and and 
I would expect throughout 2017 is, you know, the bootleg fentanyls and other uh, bootleg opioids appearing in communities um, right across Canada. And there's a range of toxicities involved. Mm -hmm. So um, you want to know what you're dealing with uh, like you would in any kind of medical diagnosis so you can, you know, uh, treat the the symptoms and and save the patient. so in the U.S., you know, they've been on it for many more years than uh, Canadians have. Uh, and the problem with real-time monitoring in Ontario is, is not unique to Ontario. It's every province and territory in Canada, uh, with, with the only exception of British Columbia, and only just recently when they uh, declared a uh, provincial overdose emergency last year. But in the U.S., they do this in real time. They do it at a local level, and they do it at state levels, and um, they're able to respond. And typically, they would use uh, data from paramedics and uh, maybe police sometimes. Um, And then, you know, it hits the media uh, quite quickly, and that serves as a bit of a warning to people who um, may be affected. Um, But it also hits service providers and first responders, so they're able to save lives and reduce injuries. Uh, Starting on April 1st, uh, Ontario begins tracking uh, on a weekly basis. What will that do? I mean, obviously, you're looking for real-time data, but how does this help? Well, it might. We'll see what comes down the pike. The way the um, letter is is worded, it compels hospitals across Ontario to collect data on um, opioid-related incidences and overdoses to um, collect some demographic data, uh, ages, uh, gender, and so on. Um, And then within a week, hospitals have to report that up, uh, up the chain. And at some point in the future, something will come back to the local level. The key question is whether that data will be made available online to everybody or if it's going to be privy to certain parties. And um, the recommendation uh, around Ontario uh, from service providers and and associations and whatnot is to to make it real-time and online. The value of of whatever comes back is it will probably be... um, a bit of a snapshot uh, closer to real time. So it will be two years from now, I wouldn't expect, or, or even a year from now. So that's progress. Um, it's looking backwards, and it might provide some clues around, you know, who's at risk and, and that kind of thing. We'll see, we'll see what happens, you know, and we'll see when it happens and what comes back. It's, it's early days still. So why not real time? Just too costly at this point? Well, that's a question that's better posed to um, uh, the the folks at senior levels in the Ontario government. Um, I think the absence of real-time monitoring has befuddled many uh, in and out of medicine for many years. Um, Here uh, at the Waterloo Region Crime Prevention Council, we first called for real-time monitoring just for the reasons we're talking about um, in September of 2008, so about eight and a half years ago. And it's been a chronic deficiency in our system uh, every year since, and we're certainly not the only folks uh, to be raising it. So I think it's the perspective of, perspective of many that um, if it's a real priority, then we will devote the resources to uh, making it happen, in the same way that you know we would devote resources to fighting SARS, for example, or uh, you know take your pick on the infectious diseases, foodborne illnesses, that kind of thing. So... It's not rocket science. I mean, clearly the Americans can do it. Uh, who who gets this info? Who is who is in need of this information? 
Well, in local communities, uh, and not just in Hamilton, but right across Ontario, the phenomena right now is uh, that that local agencies and volunteers and uh, health units are really scrambling to um, to get a handle on the uh, opioid crisis, and and part of that includes trying to come up with systems that might measure overdose fatalities and non-fatal overdoses in something like real time. And th- the purpose of that would be to, to to get some basic information about how bad is the situation. I mean, anad- antidotes are are one thing, but hard data is is quite another and quite valuable. Uh, the other part of that is how will we respond if there's an uptick in a particular neighborhood uh, in Hamilton or Ottawa or Waterloo region? And there are a range of measures that um, we could implement uh, to respond to those overdose incidences. And, I mean, let's be let's be totally honest, there's a range of things we can do to prevent those overdoses from happening in the first place. But, you know, we, we first issued a, an advisory on the bootleg fentanyls in June of 2013. We did it again last year. And Ontario, um, like many provinces, have been very, very slow to react. And it's a crisis situation that we find ourselves in. And th- those are expensive situations. They uh, come with a, a loss of life and uh, uh, preventable injuries. But that's the phenomenon across Ontario right now. It, it's really local people are, are scrambling to, to get together a system uh, to reduce death and injury. Is it really lack of information? Uh, is that what's needed now, or is it action? Well, I, I, uh, it's both, of course, but um, I, I think we know enough now to... That's what, like, that's what I'm thinking. I mean, we've known that this has been a crisis for a long time, so why aren't we just moving right to the action phase? Well, that's a fantastic question, and... Um yeah, we know enough to know better, and we've known that, as you say, for many years. And there really are, like, it's not a complex um, issue to solve. It's not going to go away anytime soon. There's no one magic solution. But, um, you know, those communities that have plans in place or developing plans, um, the next question is, okay, you've got a plan. How are you going to fund it? And um, there really is an absence of um, support from senior orders of government in supporting local communities to move forward with those interventions that we know will save lives and, and reduce injuries. So you think about you know, uh, addiction treatment, uh, it's still a, uh, it's, it's still, we measure the wait list in months, um, mm. not days and, and, and certainly not hours. When treatment on demand we know will save lives and re- reduce the burden uh, of addiction, right? So treatment, there's a, r- a range of opportunities there. There are opportunities within the enforcement and, and justice systems that are uh, present in Europe and in the United States that we know will close that revolving door in the criminal justice system. And we know there are a range of interventions that can happen inside hospitals, for example. And, you know, from a taxpayer point of view, and we're all taxpayers, and really doesn't matter what budget it comes out of, it's still a taxpayer issue, um, there are two systems you never want to touch, uh, and, and that's the criminal justice system and that's the, the hospital system because they are so expensive, and yet we have um, a revolving door happening there, and uh, the, the initiatives aren't particularly tricky or complex, but um, 
really you can't do this stuff on bake sales and garage sales and, and funding everything out of the local tax base. Hmm. Uh, do we realize how big this issue is? If you're not engaged in this activity somehow, do we realize how big uh, or how much an impact it's making on society? I'm, uh, well, I, I mean, it's not for lack of media exposure, particularly over the last, you know, 15, 16 months. It has been a, 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 a chronically reported mm-hmm. issue on a daily basis. Um, uh, so would people have known what the word fentanyl meant three years ago? I, I would guess not. Most people wouldn't. But now it's a, you know, it's a conversation at uh, dinner parties and social events and, and, and whatnot. And I think people understand that um, we are in a bit of a crisis. It might be abstract to many, but as soon as it touches, you know, your life through a friend or a family member um, or a colleague at work, uh, then it starts to become real. And w- what I'm witnessing um, around Ontario is is a, a good deal of panic as well, particularly around, you know, in the eastern uh, townships, uh, city of Ottawa, but not exclusively, and that's because they've had some teenagers who have passed away. And the only reason we know uh, that the teenagers passed away is because the media reported on it, and the only reason the media could report on it was because um, those left behind came forward with the news. Uh, Otherwise, we'd be waiting a year or two to find out about it. And, you know, panic's not particularly helpful, but that's really the discussion, and there's pressure on school boards and uh, schools and on public health units to do more, to do more. And um, that's the nature of a crisis situation, right? When we had 17 years to get a handle on on uh, on this issue, and, and we really haven't, right? I mean, remember, like, overdose, overdoses attributable to opioids reached a record level in the year 2000, and they have increased every year since. So uh, there should be no surprise that we find ourselves in this particular situation and no surprise that we find ourselves in a, in a crisis related to the bootleg fentanyls. Michael, i got to ask you one question here that's unrelated, but it is related. Are we prepared for the legalization of marijuana? Oh, that is slightly. And, and um, Are we prepared? Well, I, I think the task force uh, that has been struck at the federal level, I mean, they've done a round of consultations. They've dug into the literature. Um, we'll see what emerges out the other side. I, I think we'll, you know, the devil's in the details, how it really looks on the ground. Um, I would say one area where can, Canadians have consistently fallen short is in, is in the area of, uh, of preventing substance use or delaying the onset of substance use uh, in general, Right. So um, legalization of cannabis may offer some benefits, um, but it's not particularly beneficial if we see an increase in cannabis use, for example. Um, there, are, there are negative effects associated with cannabis, and there's positive effects as well. But there are initiatives that exist uh, largely outside of North America that aim to prevent or delay the onset of substance use. And thinking of a, a program in Iceland where... You know, they had a problem with youth uh, in particular, uh, with drunkenness and, and use of substances. They implemented a program about 20 years ago, and the results are just fantastic. And so instead of getting stoned or binge drinking or uh, getting drunk on a regular basis, um, f- folks are involved in, in slightly healthier mm-hmm. activities. 
Michael, I'm going to have to cut you off there. Michael yeah. Parkinson has been with us, drug strategy specialist with the Waterloo Crime Prevention Council. Michael, thanks for the time and insight. As always, much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. All right, the number of Canadians registered to use medical marijuana has quadrupled since the Liberals won uh, the last election back in 2015. What has caused the uptick in consumers? To talk more about all of this, Cam Batley is with us, Executive Vice President of Aurora Cannabis and Chair of the Advocacy Committee for Cannabis Canada, the Trade Association for Licensed Producers, and he is with us now. Hello, Cam, how are you today? I'm very well. How are you doing, Scott? I'm doing very well. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Uh, we appreciate this. So I'm guessing your uh, comments on, and I shouldn't put words in your mouth, um, <laughs> is that because more people are finding out about this, more people have, have access, that's why these numbers are going up. What are your thoughts? Um, there, there are a number of factors at play, and I think the, at the bottom of it, it's about social acceptance. So when I first got into the medical cannabis sector three years ago, there was still some stigma attached to the use of cannabis as medicine. Uh, in three years, that has changed remarkably. And I think a big driver of that is that so many Canadians now have a friend or a family member who has used medical cannabis successfully for the management of the symptoms of a chronic health condition. And so what we've seen is that, as you say, the number of Canadians registered with a prescription from their physician and using medical cannabis has gone from you know, next to nothing to 130,000 at the end of last year. And it's actually even bigger than that right now because it's growing at about 10% per month. So the total number of Canadians using medical cannabis with a doctor's prescription is around 150,000 right now. Uh, lots of people will say anecdotally that they that they uh, know friends that have this, and they were pot smokers before that, and this is just a way for them to get uh, legal weed. What are your thoughts on that? You know, all you'd have to do is have a chat with some of our patients, and these are people dealing with chronic health conditions, from chronic pain to, um, you know, conditions like uh, nausea caused by cancer chemotherapy. Uh, we have people who are immunocompromised and are dealing with HIV/AIDS. Uh, you know, once you talk to the patients, you realize this isn't a joke. Nobody's nodding and winking here. Uh, this is real medicine, and you know, you can understand where it comes from. Um, my background until I got into this sector was all biotechnology and pharmaceuticals. And one thing that's always been clear is that there is a vast unmet medical need when it comes to symptom management across a number of conditions. Uh, so this is really where medical cannabis is fitting in. Uh, people are trying conventional therapies. Uh, perhaps they don't work sufficiently or they can't tolerate the side effects. And they're turning to medical cannabis and seeing if that works for them. Uh, would you feel confident in saying that everybody that is doing this way, everyone that is getting prescriptions this way, has a real issue and that they all have real medical problems? You know, when you're dealing with a very large number of people, you can't say anything like that across the board. But uh, like I say, you know, we deal with uh, individual patients. We also speak with medical groups, and the number of physicians writing prescriptions for medical cannabis has exploded. So, you know, from a handful at the outset of the medical cannabis program in Canada to now there are thousands of physicians across the country who are writing prescriptions for it. And I think they see this as a reasonably safe uh, intervention. And there are a couple of reasons for that. Uh, for one thing, there's no known level of lethal overdose with cannabis. You basically can't die from it. Mm -hmm. And that's a quite remarkable thing to say. You can't say the same thing about aspirin or Tylenol. Um, so it's a reasonably safe thing for physicians to prescribe, and particularly for patients who have uh, complaints that have been going on for a long time and may not be fully managed with conventional therapies. 
So um, how does one go about getting it? How would you get it? Is it? Would all doctors be required to prescribe it? Would some say, no, I'm not into it. I don't believe it. I don't haven't seen the research, what have you. How do you go about getting it? So um, it is absolutely at the physician's discretion, as it is with any conventional prescription pharmaceutical. Um, you, If you are interested in trying medical cannabis for the management of the symptoms of a health condition, you have to go in and sit down, have an appointment with your physician, have that conversation, and it should be an informed conversation about what the potential benefits might be, what the potential risks and what the potential side effects are. So it should be an informed conversation with a physician, and ultimately it's the physician who decides, along with the patient, if this is the right choice. Are all doctors in agreement with this form of uh, therapy? Uh, are some against it? You know, it, it really reflects the same kind of uh, social change that we've seen with Canadians at large. Uh, I think the more information that's being made available with respect to the medical applications of cannabis, uh, the more physicians are gaining the knowledge and the comfort level to actually prescribe. And then typically what happens is that they will try it, uh, perhaps with a patient or two who have an intractable pain condition, for example. And if they find that they get good results, then they will prescribe it again. If they don't, it's their discretion not to. But we are seeing a tremendous growth in the system right now. And I think it's, that's being driven by the fact that there is this massive unmet medical need in symptom management and that for some people, cannabis does seem to be an effective choice. Is there enough scientific evidence for doctors yet? You know, it's unlike conventional pharmaceuticals in that medical cannabis was made available in this country as a result of court action. It didn't go through the same clinical trial process of phase one, two, and three clinical trials and then approval by uh, Health Canada that traditional pharmaceuticals go through. But there is an enormously large body of evidence with respect to cannabis. It's one of the most studied compounds in history. And so, yes, there are trials uh, in multiple therapeutic areas, so different disease conditions. Uh, they're not enormous with tens of thousands of patients like you would see with a big pharmaceutical company. They tend to be in dozens of patients, and they tend to be sponsored by the individual researcher themselves. And what um, is this mainly being used to treat uh, nausea, pain, that sort of thing? Uh, it is being used for that purpose. I would say the largest number of prescriptions uh, for medical cannabis tend to be in the area of pain management. And this is really important because you, I'm sure you know that Canada has what the medical community calls an opioid crisis. Yeah, we just, talked, we, 20, we, yes, we just talked about that with our last guest, as a matter of fact. Okay. Go ahead. So, you know, 20 million prescriptions every year in Canada uh, for opioids. And we've got the second highest per capita use after the U.S. in the world. And that's a real problem. We've got people dying from uh, both prescribed and illegal uh, opioids. So when it comes to pain management, to have an additional option for some patients with moderate pain or chronic pain, for example, chronic back pain, um, this is a very useful thing in medical terms. Can we can we equate uh, medical marijuana, though, with, with relieving the same sort of pain that, that an opioid w- w- would, uh, would treat? I mean, can, can you, I guess the question is, can we be using medical marijuana to get people off opioids? In some cases, I believe we can, and that's the guidance that we're hearing increasingly from the medical community themselves. Now, remember that when opioids were first introduced, they were intended for severe pain, things like fractures uh, and cancer pain and post-surgical pain management. Over time, 
it started to be used in areas that it wasn't originally intended for. So opioids began to be prescribed for managing moderate pain and for chronic pain. And this is where a lot of our difficulties as a country with respect to opioids came from. So can cannabis be used for some of these patients as an alternative? The evidence so far suggests yes, and more than that. It's not just that for some patients, cannabis can be an alternative. Uh, There's research being done with respect to something called opioid sparing, which means using cannabis or cannabinoids, the active pharmaceutical ingredients, in conjunction with opioids and thereby reducing the required dose of opioids. And the more you can reduce the required dose, the better off the patient will be. They'll have fewer side effects and they'll have less risk of dependence developing. Uh, would this, um, you know, I was going to say if it was backed by big pharma, but at the end of the day, it is big pharma because it's medical marijuana plants that are growing this stuff, correct? So, I mean, is this this considered big pharma or not? Well, not yet. Um, You know, our companies are, most of them, just two or three years old. Mm -hmm. Uh, Aurora Cannabis, for example, was founded in 2013, and we only started to sell medical cannabis in January of 2016. Uh, and it's been obviously a very fast growth rate since then. But uh, our market capitalization is the second largest for any cannabis company in the world. It's around 750 or $800 million today, depending on where we're trading. But that uh, pales in comparison to the size of big pharmaceutical companies. So I don't think anybody is yet ready to call us big pharma. And I don't think that, that we'll actually ever have that label applied to us because we're, we're different kinds of companies. What, why doesn't somebody, or, or maybe, you know, I guess in a, in a sense it already has happened, but why, are, why, are, why isn't Big Pharma just pulling the active ingredient out of this, putting it in pill form and selling it to us? Uh, they are. And as a matter of fact, when I worked for a pharmaceutical company back in the, in the 1990s, uh, it, we actually did sell a synthetic cannabinoid, cannabinoids obviously being the active pharmaceutical ingredient. And there are pharmaceutical companies currently selling uh, cannabinoids. Uh, these are uh, synthesized versions of, of, of the active pharmaceutical. Why are they synthesized? Um, just for reasons of uh, efficiency. And uh, there's a, a company that's based in the UK that is selling uh, two cannabinoid products right now. Uh, and um, so that, that research is ongoing. Uh, it is being undertaken by pharmaceutical companies in a slightly different way. Uh, they tend to go through the the whole process of patenting a product. And that's one of the reasons why you see them not using the dried product or the, the simple uh, cannabis oils that are for sale by companies like Aurora right now. Because they can't patent it. You got it. So it takes, on average, about a billion dollars and 10 years to bring a new medicine, a traditional medicine, through the clinical trial process and approval by regulators. And um, nobody's going to do that with cannabis itself because it's a plant and it can't be patented. So really different paths. Some of it is parallel. Um, but the, the big picture here is that the, the level of knowledge with respect to the value, the therapeutic value of cannabis and cannabinoids is really exploding right now. And Canada is a leader in that. So we've got a number of clinical trials underway right now in Canada uh, with respect to the medical utility of cannabis. And it's, it's something that kind of makes me proud. I'm, I'm glad to see that Canada is the leader in this space. Uh, is Big Pharma missing the boat on this? I mean, uh, patent or no patent, clearly it's selling. I think that they're watching and they're seeing how this develops. And they're seeing that the use of medical cannabis by patients in Canada and in some other countries is becoming quite mainstream, whereas it used to be stigmatized and controversial in the past. But, you know, once you see 
you know, your mom or your grandpa uh, using medical cannabis with success to manage pain or another condition, it kind of takes that stigma away pretty quickly. And who pays for this? How do they? Uh, what about cost? Is the patient paying for this individually? At the moment, yes, the patient is paying for medical cannabis individually. And uh, what we are working on as a company at Aurora and also as an industry association is something very important, and that is increasing the number of companies uh, who will, uh, health insurance companies, who will consider medical cannabis to be a reimbursable benefit. So that's starting to happen right now. There's a crack in the wall, and a few patients have been able to gain reimbursement through their private insurance. Uh, And what we want to do is open that crack and make sure that this legitimately becomes something that is widely covered as an effective and safe alternative, in some cases, to traditional prescription drugs. Uh, Any idea what uh, insurance companies' uh, feelings are on this? I mean, obviously, if, uh, if the uptake is so strong in Canada... Uh, there's obviously a lot of people buying in. Uh, what are they saying about this at this point, insurance companies? You know, they're taking it very seriously from what I've heard. Um, they are educating themselves. Um, they're learning to understand that uh, in some cases it's a matter of offset. So the, the regimen of prescription pharmaceuticals that an individual could replace through the use of medical cannabis, in some cases it means that there will be cost savings. In other cases, it's not about the cost savings. It's about restoring the individual to health and productivity. Uh, and these are all major concerns and, and the, you know, the, the raison d'etre, if you like, of health insurance companies. So they're taking it very seriously, and I suspect that we will see uh, on the private side sooner uh, and on the public side through provincial health insurance plans like OHIP, I think we will see uh, a crack in that wall getting wider and wider and more and more people getting reimbursement. And, you know, there, it's already in some ways, advantageous for, uh, for people who use medical cannabis because one of the things that they're allowed to do is actually write it off as an approved medical benefit on their federal taxes through the Canada Revenue Agency. Can you see this changing the economy once we get to that stage? I mean, you know, uh, we've certainly heard uh, stories of... Uh, of uh, soldiers and, and people who have been uh, have had P- a PTSD and this sort of thing, and the cost of the government going up and up and up. Can you see this being a game changer? I mean, you know, they're talking about people uh, and how much the numbers have increased to this point. Once it starts being covered by insurance, I can see that going up again, no? Well, remember, we're also displacing other costs. And, and when we talk about the economic impact of the, the remarkable growth of the cannabis industry, um, I, I think that what you will see is a lot of investment, a lot of job creation, and a lot of innovation. So investments in research. And I'll give an example. Uh, I'm in Edmonton today, and we're building the world's largest cannabis production facility at Edmonton International Airport. It's going to be 8,000 feet, uh, and that's the size of 16 football. And we are, we are meeting with local officials who are very, very interested in what the spin-off benefits are going to be. So we're going to be hiring two or 300 people to work at that facility. But we're also in research partnerships with local companies on all kinds of related technologies. And so the, the benefit to Canada of being the leader in the world with respect to medical cannabis and ultimately the consumer use of cannabis uh, is going to be significant. I think you will find that this will be one of the sectors that's driving innovation and driving job creation in the future. Uh, one caller asks, what about the dangers of synthetic marijuana? Are there dangers related to synthetic marijuana? 
Um, you know what? I, I really can't speak to that. Uh, I don't want to go beyond my own level of expertise. Right. I'm not a scientist, so I, I, I don't know what the response to that would be. I understand. Uh, Tony's on the line. Can we take a call? Do you mind, Cam? Not at all. All right, Tony, what are your thoughts? Yeah, Scott, um, I'm 50 years old. About seven years ago, I got into an accident, and I've been on Percocet ever since, two a day. I take two in the morning, and I'm all right. If I don't take them, my legs go numb, can't stand around, like, I have to sit. Mm -hmm. Now, I've tried the medical marijuana. I've smoked pot my whole life, and I've tried the medical marijuana. You know what? It's a bunch of baloney. I've tried all different kinds. You get high, it doesn't do nothing. The pain is still there. You're, I don't know. Like I say, I've always been a pot smoker, and I, to me it's just a money grab. But so are pharmaceutical companies. So, you know what? The same thing. All right. Thanks for the call, Tony. Uh, Cam, thoughts on that? Tony says it didn't work for him. I guess, does it work for everybody? Uh, you know, no medicine works for everybody. And uh, the one answer that I would have to that is sometimes it's a matter of selecting the right strain. Um, remember that cannabis has, it contains dozens of cannabinoids or active pharmaceutical ingredients. And the one that we're most familiar with is THC, uh, which is uh, the, uh, that's the cannabinoid that, that causes the euphoria, but it also contributes to pain relief, anti-nausea, and so on. But there's also another major cannabinoid, the most common um, non-psychoactive cannabinoid in cannabis is called CBD or cannabidiol. And this, again, is a non-psychoactive substance, but it's used by patients for pain relief and anti-inflammation. So some patients do very, very well with a one-to-one ratio. So a strain that has a one-to-one ratio, an equal level of both THC and CBD. And this is part of the discussion that an individual would want to have with their physician if they're considering the use of medical cannabis. Cam Batley has been with us. He is the Executive Vice President of Aurora Cannabis and Chair of the Advocacy uh, Committee for Cannabis Canada, the Trade Association for Licensed Producers. Cam, thanks for the time and insight. As always, much appreciated. It's a pleasure. Take care. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Confusion. That is Donald Trump's biggest asset. You know, the latest tax, it's not his tax return. It's two pages of his tax return that has been leaked, exposed. And again, the White House has released this ahead of the story along with a statement. So they're trying to get ahead of this while Trump's tweeting whatever the heck he tweets. There never is any explanation. And let's remind everybody here, Trump's the boss. He's the leader of the free world. He has access to all of this confusion. He has access to all the answers to the questions he's asking. But he's not interested in finding answers. He's interested in creating more confusion, perhaps as a distraction from his own actions. And everyone blames the media. Donald Trump is playing the media like a flute. There is no other person that takes advantage of the media like Donald does. And it's his failure to answer any of the questions that he has all the answers to. He's the head guy. 
He can ask the FBI, the CIA. He can ask everybody what's going on. He's the boss man. Instead, he paints himself like he's a victim. You can paint yourself as a victim when you're campaigning. Once you're the guy driving the bus, you then can't complain of the direction the bus is heading. You are driving, Donald. You are the man behind the controls. Oh, it's that cop's fault. He stopped my bus. You're the president. You can tell the cop to go to hell. And he makes it sound like everyone else is controlling his affairs or his downfall but him. He's got all the reins. He's driving. And he plays it like he's the victim, like people are attacking him. He's the boss. He's the head honcho. He's the leader. He has access to everything. So why is he creating confusion? You know, he complains about somebody going to the extent of of reporting two pages of his tax return. Well, the White House confirmed the story. So when the White House confirms the story about your tax return, the press has to jump on it. That's their job. And once again, it's every time the Donald shoots himself in the foot, the press will be there to monitor it. The press will be there to tell you where the bullet went into the foot, where it came out, and how much blood's on the floor. That's what the job of the media is. So if Donald doesn't want the media to report on this, then stop shooting yourself in the foot. The ambulance won't come if, there's an emer- if there isn't an emergency. So stop creating them. And as our last guest said, it's a president who cries wolf. And sooner or later, people are going to just not believe the guy anymore, if they haven't already. It's amazing. His whole strategy is nothing but confusion. And he's the man with all the answers. Before, he could blame Hillary. He could blame Barack. He could even blame his own Republican Party. But now he's one of them. And not only that, he's the leader. He's the leader of all these people. Let's bring in Elliot Tepper, uh, emer- uh, emeritus professor of political science, Carleton University. He is with us now. Hello, Elliot. How are you today? I'm fine, Scott. How are you doing? I'm, I'm fine. In full flow. <laughs> what, what do you think of all of this, Elliot? Oh, so many different angles to it. First of all, let's start at the top. This is a highly successful president. Mm-hmm. To the people who elected him, to the people who want him to be there, uh, he is fulfilling his campaign promises one after the other, including uh, today reinstating, is, is the word ban still permitted? I think so. Mm. Uh, and that's a very moderate move. He promised that he would stop all Muslims from entering America, and now it's just down to six countries, and they're, they're not being banned because they're Muslim. Let's be clear on that, he says. <laughs> the courts are going to disagree, perhaps. We'll see. But the point is that what he is doing seems to suit the people that wanted him to be there. Uh, and if he's upsetting the FBI, if he's upsetting the media, if he's upsetting you, 
well, that's okay with the people who elected him. Does it matter that he's not really doing anything? He's not really accomplishing anything. I mean, he's, you know, again, getting back to the tax return, where did it come from? Why the tweet, then why the White House release? I mean, it's almost a contradiction of term. Well, there's two stories we should talk about probably uh, in addition to the to the ban. One is the tax release, and the other is James Comey. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. Your producer suggested we talk about the FBI. But in terms of not getting anything done, we must remind ourselves again this is not just a Trump presidency. This is the era of the Republican Party ascendancy. So that what we hear is tweets, and what we pay attention to are tweets, and some of the more spectacular things said by the president in his unpredictable and distinctive fashion. But the Republican agenda is moving forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, and we can link this to the, to the tax uh, release in a moment. The Republicans are moving ahead with deregulation. The Republicans are moving ahead with uh, deregulation of, of the environment and their, as well as Wall Street, so two different areas altogether. They're moving ahead with Obamacare, if they can, repeal and replace. They're fighting among themselves about that. So the Republicans have an agenda. Jeff Sessions is the attorney general. He's already announced he's backing off on the investigation of states which are accused of suppressing votes, of voters, voter suppression of minorities. And that was vigorously done under the Obama administration and also police departments that were accused of discrimination. Those, those things are moving ahead. So there are things happening. It's just that the most spectacular things is what we hear about, and perhaps we should turn our attention to, <laughs> to the two on the table, the tax, the, uh, tax release today and also the FBI apparent uh, testimony today about the Russian leaks. So uh, let, let's start with the tax return here. Uh, he's saying one thing. The White House has released it. The, the reporter has released it. Is this all just a distraction from the initial tweet uh, way back uh, a week ago that uh, his, his wires were being tapped? We, I think the word distraction sums up very uh, succinctly a lot of the methodological approach that the president seems to take, along with Steve Bannon and his other advisors, that if you and I are today talking about the taxes, we're not talking about Jeff Sessions and the re- having to recuse himself or General mm-hmm. Flynn having to be fired or uh, et cetera, et cetera. There are many issues. Of, uh, one I think that should be talked about is where are the jobs and the job reports that just came out, uh, what's happening to the American economy, what about NATO, what about uh, the fact that there's going to be a summit meeting between China, the leader of China apparently is coming not to the White House, but to Mar-a-Lago. They, these are very important things happening, but we're not talking about them. So every time we, you and I spend our time talking about, well, this is a two-page leak, yeah. and yes, let's talk about it. A lot of people have. What we're not talking about is more important than what we are talking about. But again, when people read the stuff about this two-page leak and such, are they not just coming away with this and saying, what's the point? Where are we going with this? Are they not realizing it's a distraction? You and I are talking about it. Everyone else is talking about it. So is it a distraction? Well, the whole subject of his taxes have been a legitimate source of the political discourse because every other presidential nominee uh, running for your office has released tax report, reports all along until this one. So I think it's legitimate uh, to talk about taxes. This particular leak, um, as you know, I'm following the news as you are, 
there's a lot of gossip in Washington that he himself has released them. Exactly, because there's uh, nothing negative in there. Well, it, it also it stamped client copy. Yes. <laughs> so, yes. It's a hint. Uh, we don't know the facts on this. Yes, it makes him look good. He's actually paid taxes. Uh, it also strengthens the case that he's been trying to make and others about the alternative minimum minimum tax, because the big news for Trump supporters and for Republicans more generally, is that he would have paid almost no taxes at all yeah. if it had not been for this one particular segment of the tax code, which he is campaigning to have eliminated. Mm-hmm. And I think if you take a look at the cabinet, uh, I think a lot of people in that cabinet would also like to have that eliminated. So we are maybe having an attack on the tax code here as part of this leak. Uh, wow. And now I, I'm... Uh... I feel like a, uh, a a retriever that's being teased by a series of ducks. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't know which one to chomp at. Yes. Um, what? Uh, where will this go? Where? Where will? Uh, again, the tax thing. I, I just keep thinking of the phrase "look something shiny," and everybody's looking over there while something else is where, going on. Where this will go, I suspect, is. Uh, this this story will fade because tomorrow we're going to have something else shiny. Yeah. But the issue of the taxes are not going to, to fade because he still has not released, and this will take us to the second story, he's still not, not released his taxes, as everybody has been asking and everybody has always done before him, because there's concern that, well, maybe he's hiding something, and what he might be hiding is the role of Russian money in yeah. his business yeah. empire. And that takes us to what the FBI is is or is not going to say today. Today we are being told that because Capitol Hill investigators uh, committees have uh, demanded it, the head of the FBI will say something about, well, yes, uh, the president is being investigated, people around the president are being, are being investigated, and well, there may or may not be something to this charge that uh, uh, the President Obama ordered surveillance, if not tapping, of the Trump campaign. I wouldn't hold my breath on what James Comey is going to release today. He's played a very... Why hasn't he, why hasn't he been more vocal considering what he said prior to the election with, in regard to Hillary Clinton? Well, that's, maybe that's why. <laughs> but there's no election now. No. The, 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 the point is the role of the FBI has been called into question right. legitimately because unambiguously the FBI interfered in the electoral process. Now, it was short-term, but it was at a critical time. The FBI director does not want to be accused of being political. Therefore, anything he says after that time will be viewed through the lens of partisanship. Uh, Also, Donald Trump has been accusing the FBI, the President of the United States has been accusing the FBI as the source of the leaks which are coming out, which are harmful to him. So that puts the director in a very difficult position, uh, looking after his personal reputation, but also the institutional interests of the FBI. He needs to walk very, very carefully, which is why I suspect we're not going to get a lot today, despite what the uh, buildup has been, out of his testimony. Will we get more on March 20th? Who knows? <laughs> All right, I can't let you go. Uh, what are your thoughts on the on the the next vision, version of the travel ban? Will this one stick? Will that we end up in the same place the first one did? Well, keep in mind that the travel ban, um, again, as a 
if you're a Trump supporter, this is another example of promises made, promises yep. kept. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's said he's going to keep America safe. He is targeting particular groups which might be a source of uh, security risk, and therefore uh, the criticism against him is, is unfair. When it's pointed out that the original seven and now six have not been the sources of particular uh, security threats to America, and that indeed those threats come more domestically than overseas, and that the refugees are so thoroughly vetted, any refugee is so thoroughly vetted before arriving on America's soil that they have not been a primary source, et cetera, et cetera. So this is um, now going to be in the courts. We'll have to see if the courts, I think there are now three states once again saying, you say this is better than the first time. We don't think it is. It's still hidden uh, as a way to keep Muslims out. But to be uh, to stand back from it as we started out, it's really a very moderate delivery on a very heavy campaign promise. He was going to keep out all Muslims. Good point. Elliot Tepper has been with us, political science professor at Carleton University. Elliot, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Always a lot to talk about. Yes, that is true. Thank you, Elliot. Appreciate it. Let's uh, bring in Richard Friedman. He is a professor of law and expert on uh, evidence in U.S. Supreme Court history, University of Michigan, and he is with us now. Hello, Richard. How are you today? Okay, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. Uh, Your thought on the latest edition of the travel ban, will this one stick? Well, it's got a much better chance than the first one uh, because it's much more artfully done. Uh, the, the first one was rolled out in a hurry and uh, seems to have been drafted by people who didn't uh, know as much as they thought they did and uh, hadn't consulted as much as they should have. And this time, I think um, he brought the whole administration to bear. So in, in several respects, it's less vulnerable than the, uh, than the first, but it's not invulnerable. When will we know? When will we know if it's successful or not? Well, uh, as I understand it, there are a couple of hearings today mm-hmm. um, in uh, in a federal court in Washington before Judge Robart, the same judge who um, issued uh, a, a temporary restraining order against the first one. And there's also a hearing in Hawaii today. Um, as I understand it, the ban is supposed to go, the new order is supposed to go into effect uh, at 1159 tomorrow evening. So presumably uh, those judges will rule before then. But, you know, of course, in legal proceedings, it's not over at the first stage. So um, I would guess that whoever loses might uh, run up to the Court of Appeals and uh, and conceivably, more, more than conceivably this time, it, uh, it may well wind up in the Supreme Court of the United States. Will we... The first s- one didn't go to... I'm sorry, the first one didn't go to the Supreme Court because I think the president realized he was... Uh, mm-hmm. Not in as good shape as he should be, so he just redid the order. Will we see the same sort of confusion and chaos at airports that we saw when the last one went into effect? Uh, I wouldn't think so, because this time they were um, more deliberate about it and had a postponed uh, effective date. Um, Also, it it, uh, doesn't apply to people who already have a right to, uh, to enter the country, so I... I think it's uh, it would um, not not create that confusion, or at least much less of it. Is this uh, is this watered down version enough to keep it out of the courts? Yet enough to keep his core happy. Um, well, it's in the courts, but uh, is it enough to succeed in the uh, the courts? Um, well, um, we we will see. I mean, I think. Uh, 
he can say I'm doing what I'm uh, what I can. Yeah, you know that would be uh, his argument. Um, but there there is a tightrope because um, the first thing he said was he's going to keep Muslims out, uh, and uh, that created a good deal of revulsion. And uh, uh, although um, the the general rule is that the uh, the nation has um, extreme uh, um, uh, discretion at the border. Um, that probably would have been uh, blatantly unconstitutional. And so the question now is, well, is he trying to just dress up a pig, you know, and present it as something uh, something different? So we'll see. I think um, he's okay in the sense of uh, saying to supporters, look, I, I did what I could the first time, you know, and they, they the courts threw it back at me, so I'm doing what I can here, but we'll, we'll see if it gets by. How has a better chance than the first one. How will life change if it does go through? How will life change if it doesn't? Well, if it, if it does go through, I, I, I think, frankly, the, um, the downside is um, more an expressive harm, uh, that, that the nation has, um, has uh, put in this ban. It's very temporary, you know. But has put in this ban, which um, um, appears to be born out of um, uh, fear and uh, and um, uh, arguably prejudice. Um, and uh, uh, that expressive harm might have uh, real impact on the ground in our relations uh, overseas uh, with with the Muslim world. Uh, so that's uh, that's hard to know. And in terms of the actual numbers coming through, I don't think it will be. It will be that many, um, uh, but uh, be, because the, the ban on entry from the six designated countries is only for 90 days. The ban on refugees is um, for 120 days. Uh, frankly, I'm, um, I'm uh, at least equally disturbed by one part of the uh, ban that I think uh, is, is not being challenged, uh, which is just that he's limited the number of refugees that we're going to take in. Hmm. And um, that just seemed uh, mean-spirited. What if it is rejected? What if it is rejected and he ends up in the same place that the last one did? Well, um, he uh, he would um, certainly make a ruckus, Mm -hmm. you know. And uh, and one of the questions I suppose is whether that's um, from a political standpoint just what he wants. What will uh, go ahead? Yeah, you know, he, he, you might have noticed he doesn't mind making a ruckus. No, no. no. So what happens uh, after ninety days? I mean, does he have it all figured out well, by then? Well, that, uh, that's what it's supposed to be—that he's yeah. supposed to be figuring this out over the ninety days. I mean, I wonder. Well, wait a minute. Why do you need ninety days on January twenty-seventh when you put the first order and you said ninety days? You know, this one came in what? For, um, um, uh, end of February. Uh, um, what? Uh, what? Or, or what have you really learned so far? I guess it was. What, yeah, yeah. What have you been doing with the uh, 38 days? <laughs> so you should you should need 52 days uh, only. Uh, so you know, I mean, I mean, the logic of it is is not entirely apparent to me. Uh, but but supposedly it's to figure things out so that we can that we can improve the system, and then presumably he's going to say, okay, now we've improved the system. Uh, g- the tax release business that came out over the last 24 hours, uh, is this another leak distraction away from all of this? 
it is it is something of a <laughs> it's something of a distraction. I mean, I don't think it's something that he tried to create. If, if that's what you're saying, but um, um, there there are piles of distractions. <laughs> but um, yeah, I have no idea. Do you have any idea who leaked it? No. No, I, I just yeah. find it interesting that the White House sort of tried to jump ahead of the story. They knew it was coming, I guess, and, and tried to coming, get ahead yeah. of it, which, you know, then yeah. how can you label it false if it's, you know, if it's if, if all of a sudden the White House decides to engage with it? Um, yeah, well, I think I think they um, probably realize that uh, once the thing is out, it's going to be very apparent that it is a genuine return. So there's... Um, uh, they, they can complain about leaks, but they're not going to persuade anybody in saying that this is false. Richard Friedman has been with us, professor of law, University of Michigan. Richard, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you. Enjoyed it. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.